0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Dr. Timothy Jennings with us tonight. Look, the God-shaped brain. You know, it's interesting because we, we give mental assent to this around the around the periphery. For example, um, we talk about Philippians 4, 8, a passage of Scripture that we are all very, very familiar with. Uh, you know, Finally, brothers, whatever things are true and whatever things are honest and just and pure, holy, lovely, so on and so forth, if they be of good report, any virtue, if they be any praise, think on these things. Why is God telling us to do that? Why are we encouraged to, to meditate um, on the things of the Lord? Why are we told to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ or put on the mind of Christ? Ironically, Dr. Jennings, we talk a lot about this issue of thoughts and the way we view things mentally. And yet, when it comes to playing this out in reality, we've not seen, perhaps, the, or at least been willing to acknowledge that strong connection between how we view God or think of God and the way that plays out in every aspect of life, physically, mentally, spiritually.
2: And I think part of the reason for that is somehow these ideas is entered into much of religion and Christianity that what happens in church is about your future eternal security. It's like it's like future life insurance. And so you get things taken care of for the future need by going through the proper rituals or accepting Jesus, but it doesn't actually have impact on our life today. Rather than realizing what we've shown in the book is that God has actually constructed His universe to operate in certain ways. And living in harmony with His design for life actually, as Christ said, that we might have life and have it more abundantly now. And there actually is a real-life consequence to living in harmony with God's design or deviating from that design that we experience here and now. Mm.
1: Let's talk a bit about some of the issues related to fear. We touched on this just before the break. Um, we know that there are certain chemicals that are produced in the brain when we are subject to circumstances or situations that either uh, increase anxiety in us or create a sense of fear in us, uh, that kind of uh, fight-flight Reaction. If we view God with a sense of fear and trepidation, does that also produce that that kind of chemical reaction in the brain?
2: Absolutely. And I, and this is what we've shown in in the, in the uh, from the science and from the in the book is that. This chronic fear activation is actually antagonistic to love. Love and fear are inversely proportional. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hit because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. And so there's actually, neurobiologically, there's this tension that sets itself up. The part of the brain where you experience, and when I use the word love, I'm, I'm uh, describing compassion altruistic regard self-sacrifice beneficence we're not talking erotic or romantic love we're talking that that brotherly love that one uh, loves so much they give their life for a friend that kind of love when christ said um you know uh, greater love is no man to lay his life down for a friend this kind of love means i care so much for you that i'll do whatever's for your best interest including give my life that you might live many parents experience this love For their children. If their children are in some danger, they would easily step into that danger to protect their child. Well, that's at war with another principle that's driven by fear, since Adam's sin, that the scientists call survival of the fittest. I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including, if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. Love you, love you so much, I'll give my life that you might live. Love myself so much, I'll kill you that I might live. These are antithetical, love versus fear. Fear drives us to self-protection and exploit and hurt others. Mm.
1: This process then of beginning to recognize the impact that our thinking process, the way we view or react to God, a lot of it of course goes back to uh, a childhood. Um, we often hear stories, uh, Dr. Jennings, of individuals example, who um are introduced to the claims of Christ later in life and often struggle with the imagery of God as a benevolent, loving, protective heavenly Father who would sacrifice his only begotten Son on our behalf and we, we some people will reject that just absolutely out of hand because they grew up in a household where there was perhaps an absentee father or a you know drug crazed alcoholic. Uh, driven, abusive father, and so the notion of being able to equate a loving, heavenly father who sacrifices his son on behalf of all of us that we might walk in relationship with him is antithetical to their to their manner of thinking.
2: Yes, you're exactly right, and that is a barrier for some people. Our childhood experiences certainly can put obstacles in the way. And that's, of course, why we are called to be witnesses, the hands and feet, so to speak, uh, God's uh, disciples and agents on earth, to love those individuals. And so they may not have experienced God-like love in their childhood, but they can experience God-like love in their adulthood from others who can still love them in spite of their shortcomings and anger, and ultimately lead them to see Christ in us.
1: We talk about this notion in Scripture of uh, bringing our thoughts into captivity— how can we rewire all of this? Um, you
2: know, this is a great point. And um, I, put, I point out in the book that the way the, the brain is designed is that the, the, there's a protein that is like um, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Brain-derived means the brain makes it neurotrophic factor is simply a factor that makes the neurons grow stronger. So think of it as neuro, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. When it's available, the neurocircuitry that gets it will actually sprout new connections. The brain will make new neurons that influences the proteins like this. But the, this particular protein doesn't come off of the DNA or isn't produced immediately in this form. It comes in a precursor form called pro-BDNF. And that particular um, protein is actually like weed killer for the neuron. If it binds to the neuron, it will actually uh, kill the dendrite, kill the axon, cause pruning back of the neural circuitry. And so the key issue is if there's, a, if there's an enzyme available that will cleave this, this weed killer into the fertilizer, then the neuron grows stronger. What determines whether you have this enzyme or not? And this is fascinating. It's the activity of the neural circuit itself. If you're firing the neural circuit, using it, it produces this enzyme. So pro-BDNF, the weed killer's cleaved into the fertilizer and it grows stronger. The circuit grows. But if you're if you're dormant, if you're leaving it inactive then and not using the circuit, then that enzyme is not produced and the weed killer actually takes over and you start pruning the circuitry back. And so imagine the situation of trying to study a language in high school, maybe Spanish in high school, and you're studying brute force memory and you keep practicing your firing this circuit, this new forming circuit, and this enzyme's produced, and you get more of the fertilizer, and it expands, and you keep doing it, and the circuitry grows, and then one day you graduate, and 20 years go by, and you haven't spoken the language for 20 years, and what happened to your ability and proficiency? It's been pruned back. Well, where where every thought into captivity comes now, let's say um, we have somebody in their imagination imagining certain thoughts, like we can lock a pedophile up in prison so he can't act on the behavior. But can we control the imagination? No. And if you fire those thoughts in your imagination, you're still activating the circuit. You're still producing the enzyme. You're still growing the pedophilic uh, type of thinking stronger. And so the person may come out more recidivist pedophile than they went in if they're not bringing their thoughts into captivity.
1: So a lot of this has to do with the way we control and focus our thoughts. And again, that goes back to much of the the instruction that we've received, but sadly have never put it fully into practice within Scripture. So if we have been raised with a fearful viewpoint of God... Um, and we know what the brain's reaction is to that. As much as the way we see the way the brain will react to to violence and the numbing effect oftentimes, for example, in children that spend hours on end um, viewing violent video games or or television programs, and after a while it tends to kind of anesthetize them to the the reality of what they're really facing. Then Mm -hmm. when they are exposed to real significant violence, they're almost uh, nonchalant about it because they've been anesthetized to all of this. So if, if then there has been a long process of training so to speak the brain to believe that God is someone to be feared and and as a result um, has has set up this boundary uh, that prevents us from able to enter into the kind of relationship that God wants with us or uh, the impact that it has on other relationships we mentioned a moment ago how do we retrain that process
2: yeah this is uh, in our book we've introduced this idea of the um, integrative evidence-based approach we have to be willing to look at evidence and we've and we've identified three threads of evidence that God has provided that when we harmonize all three we can have a more consistent idea of the truth that God is trying to reveal and the three threads are scripture all scriptures given by God for inspiration inspired by God is given for instruction and so forth Science, it says in Romans 1.20 that God's divine nature is seen in what He has made so that men are without excuse. We look into nature and science and experience, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Scripture says, check me out, experience me. And if you separate the three threads, science without the other threads, without Scripture, is vulnerable to going into godless evolutionism. If you have experience without Scripture and science, it's vulnerable to mysticism, particularly Eastern mysticism, which is making huge inroads in America. And then scripture alone without the other two. I don't know if you know, but the the Christian Encyclopedia currently identifies 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible supports their view. Hmm. And so without the other two anchors, we end up in confusion and disagreement and argument. And so bringing all three threads together, we can find a harmonized truth that reveals, and this is what the beauty, and this is what we've shown in the book, is that God is love, And that love, when you come back to a knowledge of God's love, it actually activates healthy brain circuits. It turns off the fear circuits. We have less anxiety, lower heart rates, lower blood pressures, lower uh, cholesterol levels. We have less risk of heart disease. We live longer. We have less risk of dementia. All these things happen when we come back to a knowledge of God, but we hold those other distorted concepts. We actually have more disease, and, and we have more disability.
1: There's so much about this business of putting on the mind of Christ and bringing our thoughts into captivity and focusing on him. Now, of course, the big key, if you've been eavesdropping on this conversation, um, as Dr. Janine points out in the book, insight doesn't always equal change. You have to take a proactive approach. And I would encourage you today, if you've been struggling with the distorted God construct, um, maybe it's time to put off that old way of thinking. Um, and, and recognize that beliefs indeed impact uh, our physical, mental, and spiritual health and well-being. And so coming back full circle to meditate on Scripture, to bring our thoughts into captivity, and to, to imply or apply the, the, uh, the core, quite frankly, of what we're taught in Philippians 8, of what to focus on and getting back to god's word and and reinventing so to speak. The way we think of God and ultimately relate to him uh, is one of the biggest keys to changing your view of God and then transforming your life. The book called The God-Shaped Brain, newly published, by the way, by InterVarsity Press, and you can get information on the web at comeandreason.com. That's comeandreason.com. And our thanks to its author, Dr. Timothy Jennings, for being with us on this edition of Life Live.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: We're going to spend some time in this portion of the program talking about power. Now, at least you think we're going to dive into a bit of a thesis on how to reduce your energy bills and uh, save money. Uh, No, not quite that kind of power. But power nevertheless, a topic that while most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about in a direct fashion, we nevertheless are engaged in it. Some of us exercise it, others have a thirst or a yearning for it. It's something that we think about at certain levels, and yet we have this very odd relationship with power. We know certainly that the old adage, what is it, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what of our relationship to this topic of power from a spiritual standpoint my next guest tonight has taken some time to dive deeper into this very equation, and he details his findings and really kind of kind of pulling back, so to speak, the, the layers of the onion to help us better understand our relationship to power inside the pages of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. It is written by author, executive editor of Christianity Today, Andy Crouch. And Andy, thanks so much for being on the program with us.
3: Thank you Craig I'm delighted to be here
1: fascinating topic it's something that as I say well we probably don't get up every day and think specifically about this topic it's one that we're we're tied into on a day-by-day basis and a lot of us find ourselves even in this in this struggle for or against power of one sort or another uh, literally daily don't we
3: it's part of being a human being i think it's actually part of being a living any living creature uh... has some kind of power because power in the most basic sense is just the ability to make a difference in the world to make some kind of change in the world and if you're alive you're doing that one way or another but as human beings we have much more complex kinds of power than other creatures do, other parts of creation do and that's ultimately because we're, we're made in the image of God in, in a way that other creatures aren't. And I think that's why every human being, um, you know, you mentioned a yearning for power. Every human being kind of wants room to, to make something of value and worth, but then also this has become very distorted uh, by our own sin and the ways that we've uh, distanced ourselves from God.
1: Indeed, we see uh, laid out literally from the Garden of Eden uh, the capacity of power to either do good or do evil, and then it seems as if it's been a, a history-long, lifelong struggle for mankind in trying to deal with, well, what exactly is our relationship to power? What do we do with it? Why do we yearn for it? How do we corrupt it? How do we drive it in the right direction so that it can, in fact, do more mm-hmm. good than it does evil? You know, when you when
3: you lay it out like that, you realize, in a way, the whole story of scripture is a story about power it's about the original power that human beings were meant to have they're made in the image of god they're the climax of creation in genesis one and they're given dominion you know that's a power word over the whole creation these very frail vulnerable creatures just like you and me, are, are told that they're to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and you know all this stuff that pre-technological humanity couldn't directly control and yet they're given this vision that they're there to represent the creator in the midst of creation but then something goes very wrong and i think you'd sum it up by saying they try to uh declare depend uh declare independence from god they try to separate themselves from god and use their power for themselves and the power that we were meant to have which was meant to be the f- for the flourishing of the whole world ends up being kind of turned in on our own uh, benefit our own self-protection and then the question becomes how is god going to intervene to set this story right, and that in many ways is is the story of the rest of the Bible.
1: And it really is amazing, as you point out, I mean, literally in the opening chapter of Genesis, we see the first action of God, a display of his power as he engages in his creative power to bring about planet Earth. Then we see later on, once mankind is about the scene, uh, first an account of the power struggle between Lucifer and God himself, and right. then later on, man's power struggle as we engage in this battle in the Garden of Eden. And it seems as if this, this issue of kind of a a power struggle with God or against God has kind of been a component from day one, hasn't it? <laughs> absolutely and this was actually true even in the
3: world where the where the book of genesis was first written down because the other creation stories that were told by the the gods of babylon or the you know the religion of babylon all said that the world began with a conflict uh they were all conflict stories the amazing thing about genesis 1 is it does not have it doesn't begin with conflict the conflict comes in later and the the root conviction of Genesis 1 is that when God uses his creative power, it brings only abundance. It's not kind of a zero-sum game, where if I win, you lose, or if you win, I lose. Instead, you get more and more flourishing. Uh, what happens, though, when the man and the woman are tempted, <laughs> and when they give into that, and when that sets in motion, really, history as we know it, is power becomes about conflict and it becomes about competition it's no longer about mutual flourishing where we actually both could win it's about one of us is going to to dominate mm. uh, the other or one force is going to dominate the other and we start to believe that that's the realist form of power that the, the most real power is the power that can make you do something you don't want to do rather than the power that can call into being a world or new kinds of creativity new kinds of culture uh, that actually benefits everyone.
1: So what's fascinating about this, then, is we really get pulled into this topic, Andy, of power in relationship to whether it's being used for uh, malevolent purposes or, on the other hand, malevolent purposes, mm-hmm. that impacts every relationship that we have. I mean, certainly it, with God, I mean, sin is what better description of the power struggle yeah. uh, that exists between mankind and God uh, than to see sin and and how that power fight's going on, and not just, though, on the vertical plane, but even on the horizontal plane in our relationships. Yeah. I mean, think of the young teenager who's rebelling against his parents, and all of a sudden there's this power struggle that we see that's being displayed there. E- even the friction between husband and wife and relationships at that level oftentimes are demonstrative of this fight over power. They
3: really are about power. And uh, and I think that's because in many ways, it's the most it's the most fundamental thing we're given to work with as human beings, either for good or for bad. Um, And so you do find it in every relationship, actually, every workplace, every church, every family and and most of us realistically the place where most of us have the most power is in our family relationships especially if we're parents but even even as uh, those of us who are parents know children have tremendous power in their relationship with their parents mm-hmm. and and of course that's why so much of the bible story is the story of families that either get it somewhat right never entirely right uh and sometimes get it terribly wrong um and you know again we often think you know when we think of power I think we often think of you know politics or perhaps military power and those are very real but when I started to dive into this issue I realized actually all of us confront these issues every single day I confront in my own home not just when I'm out doing allegedly powerful things but even in choosing how I relate to my wife and my children my neighbors It happens at every scale of human society.
1: Well, even deeper than that, perhaps, Andy, is the power struggle that goes on internally. I mean, look, for example, Paul talked about, you know, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know to do good, and yet I do it not. Daily I have to die unto the flesh. Don't we see demonstrated there, in that sense, an internal power struggle going on? Do we yield to God? Do we yield to the devil? Who's going to kind of get control here?
3: i think that's an amazing observation and what it always i think uh, for many people the real question in life is not actually does god exist i think most people no, God exists, and Paul says even those who don't believe that sort of suppress the truth. They still know the truth, but the real question is: Is God good? <laughs> and and especially if I serve God, well, does that mean I have to give up things I want? Does that mean I have to give up what's good? And the the root of of every abuse of power is the idea that that we can't both get something good. Either I and God, I can't. God can't get what's, you know, good for God and good for me, or you and I, if we get locked in a power struggle, we start to believe either I win or you win. And when that enters into our relationship with God, we've basically believed the very thing the serpent says in Genesis uh, 3, which is God's actually jealous of his power, and he doesn't want you to have all of it, so you better eat that fruit so that you'll have what God doesn't want you to have. And that's the fundamental lie, that God wants you to have something that would actually be good for you, but that God doesn't want
1: you to have. And that's, that's an amazing point that you make there because there is an aspect of this power that we define in the flesh. And I mean, we just bring up the topic. We think of power. It's the energy to drive to do something, to accomplish something. And we often think that, well, the greatest display of power is when we're flexing our muscles to use power, failing perhaps to recognize that it somehow there's there's another aspect that can show how powerful we can be that in the flesh might seem to be weak, but in the spiritual realm is, in fact, very powerful. We'll talk a bit about that, too, as we continue our conversation today. Andy Crouch on the line with us today. He, executive editor of Christianity Today and the author of a new book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues here on KFAX.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Dissecting today in this edition of Lifeline all of the power struggles that we see at so many levels within our relationships, within our history, Uh, really going back to the beginning of time tonight with Andy Crouch. Um, He, of course, does not go quite back to the beginning of time, but he's been around for a while, enough to be able to be executive editor of Christianity Today, a prolific writer. One of his other best-selling books includes Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling. We're talking today, though, about his latest book, newly published by University Press, called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Interesting, Andy, when we talk about the ways in which sometimes power gets distorted, we always have that sense that power is about getting my way. Mm. And if I just get my way, I'm somebody that's very powerful. And yet sometimes surrendering parts of ourselves, while perceived perhaps in the flesh to be weakness, actually can be quite powerful, can't it?
3: yes and uh... you know it's amazing how often, how much time you spend in the first chapter of genesis when you start thinking about this because of course the first chapter of genesis begins with god the creator who we know as christians is three persons three and one and there's that interesting moment in genesis one where god actually says let us make humankind and that uh... creator is already complete he has his way if you want to put it that way already without making the world and yet this god desires to bring into being a world that's going to have all of these other creatures starting with very simple creatures uh... in the first days of creation as, it's, as the story is told but then culminating in these creatures who are made in his image he actually wants partners and so when we think about the highest form of power i think we do often think boy if i really had power i would just say you know do it and people would do it <laughs> they would basically be little uh... robots obeying my commands um, and this is what we think it would be like to be god to be able to just move things around and move uh... persons around without regard to what they want but it seems like the deeper form of power is actually to call into being other other persons who can actually collaborate with you because that's what god essentially invites these creatures made in his image to do to be his representatives in the midst of creation So, you know we really have to get away from this idea that the, the realest form of power is control or command and realize that actually the realest form of power is creation and collaboration that's when you have the most powers when other people actually take up their own
1: creative abilities. And, and that understanding, that perspective is, is critically important, isn't it? Because if we're going to redeem power, then there has to be something worthy of being uh-huh. redemptive there. And so often, as I say, I think, Andy, a lot of us mistake power for meaning that means you get to do whatever you want to do in order to other people around to do your bidding, which, as we're learning, is absolutely not the case at all. So then at yeah. the end of the day it's understanding that perspective that allows us to see the good of power and how this can be then redeemed for God's purposes.
3: That was one of the big breakthroughs for me was when I realized we often talk about power as if it's the same thing as dominance or domination. And actually that domination is a is a very weak form of power. If all I have over you is the ability to make you do things that you don't want to do. I actually have very little Real power.
1: And it's interesting Uh, you mention that. I remember thinking back to a lot of the media reports, for example, over Ariel Castro. This is that guy there in Cleveland that kidnapped Amanda uh, Berry and and two other girls. Uh, And you would read the story on the surface and see the way which he uh, held these girls in in the basement of this house with uh, wire ties around their wrists and chains and everything else. And you think, well, there's demonstrative of this guy being so powerful, wielding all this power over these girls. And yet the deeper you get into the psyche in the story, you begin to realize, no, this guy's not powerful at all. In fact, he's pretty powerless.
3: Yes. And, and, you know, Paul uh, will use the language of imprisoned or slave. You know, a slave... Especially in the ancient world, with someone who had absolutely no power of their own, completely dependent on their master, and Paul says, if we really get gave into that idea of domination, if we got what we think we want, which Ariel Castro did kind of get for a time, but what he thought he wanted, the ability to dominate, we actually become slaves uh, of sin. We we don't end up being masters, and that's why the serpent's promise in the garden is so um appealing and so deceptive because actually once the man and woman get what they want what we want to be like god without having to be in a relationship with god they actually find that they don't have what they wanted at all um, and that's
1: what where domination
3: leads. It, it actually, strangely enough, leads to the, the one who would be master ends up being, becoming completely so mastered
1: by it. Re- really, Satan is in the process of distorting power then uh, from the very beginning and all the time. Yeah. I mean, think, for example, about Jesus there during the 40 days in the wilderness uh-huh. and the number of times that he was tempted. And, and I always read those passages and thought to myself, Satan, you're an idiot. I mean, to begin with, you're going to say that you're going <laughs> to offer... Very God himself, here, if you just bow down and worship me, I give you all of the kingdoms of the earth, and so on and so forth. And I always thought to myself, how can you give God what he already has? (laughs) It's all his to begin with. He created it all, so how can you give him what he already has? Yes, but, you know, in a way, Jesus is the only human being who has heard those
3: temptations and not at some level given in. Mm -hmm. Now, not all of us uh, have heard the promise of every single kingdom, but all of us have that kind of twinge of an idea that we're made for more than we have. And and that's true. Uh, We, You know, we're made in the image of God. We're made for much more than we currently experience. But Satan insinuates this idea that there's a shortcut to it, that it involves domination, that it involves kind of cheating God of what God, only God can give. And Jesus is the only human being who's ever realized that's actually not, uh, that bargain will not actually work out. It's actually a lie. And if, if he went through with it, he would find that Satan had mastered him. And instead, he came out of that temptation able to to say no.
1: Bring us back to this full circle of the issue of um, bringing power back into the balance first to understand mm-hmm. that it, it needs to first and foremost be used for the capacity to do good and we see when we really mentioned this even from the very get-go is we see this in scripture the very first acts of God are crea- is the demonstration of creative power-hmm
3: yeah, so I think one question to ask is, you know, with whatever power I have today, you know, you mentioned I have a I have a title, I'm executive editor of a magazine called christianity Today. Well, that's a position of power. So the question is, I think there's a couple questions. One is, who am I using that power for? And if the answer is I'm using it mostly for my own benefit to uh, you know, increase my own notoriety or fame or my own wealth or, you know, any number of things, then it's. I'm probably going to end up using other people for my ends, but it might be possible to use even you know positions like that actually for others flourishing. And I think in the case of people who say own a business, so that it could be a small business, or have a position like I do, or you are in charge of some people, you you actually are given power not for your own flourishing, but for their flourishing. So one of the most important questions we can ask is, who is flourishing because I have power? (laughs) And if the answer is me and mine, that isn't very much like the true God, but if the answer is the people who actually are under my care are flourishing, they're becoming more of what they're meant to be, they're expressing their own power, they're getting to do things they, they wouldn't have gotten to do otherwise, then I think we're on the path to a much better use of power.
1: If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Andy Crouch is with us. He's the author of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Now, when we come back after a quick timeout, we're going to go deeper into this topic, uh, how we can go about utilizing the creative and benevolent power that God has given to all of us um, in order to use it for his glory, to go deeper in our relationships, not with, just with God on the uh the vertical plane, but with others on the horizontal plane as well, as Andy just referred to. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation right after this.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Well, as we're discovering in our conversation tonight with Andy Crouch, and certainly displayed throughout so much of Scripture, uh, the power can be used in very many good ways. We think of creative power. We think of the power that has been given to us unto salvation through Christ's substitutionary work on the cross. Uh, And yet, as we see the good side, the good aspects of power, we also recognize there's a power struggle. There's a balance between power being good used for good or power being good used for evil. How do we go about harnessing, harnessing power for the use for good, for the glory of the kingdom, and learn how to become, I guess, ultimately Andy Crouch trustees of power. We're we're mm. we're kind of entrusted to this. It's just what we do with it, huh?
3: <laughs> yes, that's right. And you know, the title of my book is "Playing God," and we usually say that like it's a bad thing, uh, and it is a really bad thing if you're not playing the true God. But the Really, the question is not whether you're playing God or not, it's which God are you playing. You're going to play some image, you're going to bear some image with your life. Your life will either reflect the image of a false God, the God of domination, the God who has to get his own way, or it will reflect the, the image of the true God, the God who, when things went so terribly wrong, was even willing to give up his own son, uh, to bear pain rather than inflict pain. Um, So, it really comes down to what you believe ultimate reality is about. And if you believe that the Christian gospel is true, it's going to change, I think, how you use the power you have, and also who you use it for. You won't use it primarily for your own benefit, and you will use it, especially, it seems to me, for those who are the, the most vulnerable the least and the last and and the lost that Jesus talked about so many times, Jesus kind of reorients our use of our power towards people who can never pay us back necessarily, who can't benefit us, but who our exercise of power can actually help them flourish.
1: This is kind of a delicate dance, isn't it? Because we see, for example... Uh, Examples of uh, servant leaders. These are individuals who who have power, maybe within an organization that they can hire and they can fire things of this sort, uh, and yet they wish to, instead of putting that power to use to demonstrate how much power they have, rather Mm. sharing it with others to to empower them. It's interesting how perhaps there's a certain power of shared power, isn't there?
3: Absolutely. And I think that's a a wonderful model. And uh, in a way, you know, I think power really is, it's supposed to be used to serve. Um, That is to say, it's supposed to be used to help others flourish who would not have flourished if you didn't use your power. So if you have one of those positions, your responsibility is to make sure that other people flourish. And that's, in a way, the deepest, I think, sense of
1: what's serving. Well, is. and we certainly see that, you know, throughout Scripture. I mean, for example, God is a righteous and holy God who created us, could have easily have said, well, my creation has offended me, and therefore I'm going to use my power to punish and abolish my creation. Instead, he used his power to bring about victory over death and sin through the work that his son did on the cross.
3: It's amazing. And you know, as amazing as creation is, in some ways the new creation Paul talks about, which is the result of the the giving of God and God's Son on the cross, is even more amazing. The new creation is just extraordinary, that God reaches into this broken world and doesn't act simply to wipe things out, or to cont- even to command and control everything but starts recreating right in the midst of it, and ultimately is going to make everything new, it says in Revelation. That's real power, <laughs> the ability to make all things new, to wipe tears from people's eyes, from everyone's eyes. Um, and we, of course, we only get a little taste of that uh, in our own lives. We're only given a tiny measure of that. And any more than we have would overwhelm us. But I do think we have access to that kind of recreating power as well as the sort of original creativity that was human beings' birthright as image bearers.
1: How do we start this process in terms of, I think, probably just evaluating where we're at in this power struggle Uh, that we have with God? And, uh, of course, that that then spills over into every other relationship. How do we go about analyzing... Andy, the way we're using our power, either to good or to Uh, evil, and then learn how to rebalance it so that it becomes a a redemption of power?
3: I think that's a fantastic question. And, you know, I would start with uh, with our neighbor who we have seen, as James says. James says, you know, how can you love God who you haven't seen when you can't love your neighbor who you have seen? And we can Sometimes be very clever about rationalizing our relationship with God, but our neighbor sees how we treat them, and I'm thinking maybe not so much our next door neighbor, though it could be that, but the people who are closest to us. I think the place to start is to ask, very to create an environment where you can honestly ask and honestly hear, how am I using whatever power I have? Um, and so husbands should ask this of their wives, uh, and wives should ask this of their husbands. Can start at home. It can happen in the workplace, to say, you know, I have power in this position, perhaps, and asking the people who are affected by that, how am I doing? And making sure that they can answer honestly. Now, that takes time, that takes building trust, but I think other people will, the other thing that happens, most of us don't think we have very much power, but when you ask other people, what are some of my gifts, what are areas where when I do this, it really creates things? They will they'll give you insight into the power you actually have, even if you don't have a title that seems like it has a lot of power, or a position that seems like it has a lot of power.
1: Now, let's talk then about relationship to bringing that power balance back in our, in our relationship with God. Mm. So then, I, so once
3: we've started to uh, hear from our neighbors <laughs> how we're doing, I, I think there's a huge place for you know, what often the Christian tradition is called the spiritual disciplines. Because the spiritual disciplines actually put us in a very powerless place. When I fast, or when I am silent, or when I pray alone, there's no one to impress. <laughs> it's not something I'm very good at. I think the interesting thing about the spiritual disciplines, like fasting, is any any human being, uh, any healthy adult human being can do that. It's not hard to do, and yet it's impossible to do it well. When you seriously take up a discipline of fasting, you discover how how uh, sort of uh, accustomed you are to filling every little need with food, and you discover how much you need God. Uh, so I think the spiritual disciplines are, are ways that sort of train us to realize how dependent we've become on our own sense of ourselves and our own sense of power. And they, they sort of lay us open before God. And it's amazing what you discover about yourself mm-hmm. in prayer as you practice these
1: disciplines. And at the end of the day, it's not that God wants to strip us of power. It's how we channel it, how we direct that, how we use that power.
3: He wants us to have true power, and more, I think, than we ever really imagined. Uh, you know, Paul, when he's trying to deal with the church in Corinth, and they're you know, taking each other to court, <laughs> he says, look, don't you know we're going to judge angels? I mean, there's an immense amount of power that is waiting to be conferred on these redeemed image bearers that God wants to bring back into his creation the way it was originally meant to be. So God, you know, this is the, the the great lie is that God wants to take power away from us and keep us from having things we want, <laughs> when in fact God has more for us than we could ever imagine. But it's a matter of becoming the kind of uh, image bearers who can bear the weight of that mm-hmm. and who can not be uh,
1: kind of corrupted by it. To whom much is given, much is expected. Yeah, yeah. And that really kind of brings us full circle on this topic tonight. I, I sure appreciate you diving into this. Andy, because it's one that I think, you know, again, we we look at all mankind, and we see a power struggle going on. <clears throat> we look at history, we see a power struggle going on. We look at Scripture, we see a power struggle going on. We look at sin in our lives with God, and we see a power struggle going on. It's not that power is a bad thing. I mean, Thank goodness for power. We wouldn't be on the radio right now if it wasn't for power. And yet if I walked up to one of the towers and decided to wrap my arms around it, I could also find out that the same power that's allowing our voices to get out all over the San Francisco Bay Area uh, could strike me dead in the wrong fashion in a quick second. So it really comes down to our relationship with power and what we do with it
3: exactly and the good news is god is at work in all this and uh... that very thing that can electrocute (laughs) and in a way did electrocute his son right his son suffered the worst that human power can do that God can even overcome that and has something amazing on the other side of it that really brings uh, blessing to, to the world. And that's what I think the hope that we can have as we realize that power is everywhere, uh, but but God's power to redeem and recreate and restore is everywhere as well.
1: You, you might initially hear the topic and say, well, this is a good book. I'm gonna get a copy from my boss. <laughs> um, or I have a husband or a wife or whomever that seems to be on a power trip. But really, all of us struggle at one level or another with power, trying to redefine what our relationship with power is, and then to learn that this is not something that um, should be shunned, per se, that in fact it's a gift from God. How do we, though, redeem it for his purposes? You'll find some great insights... (laughs) pardon me, inside the pages of Andy Crouch's new book called Simply Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power, the new book, again, published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as uh, all the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc. Andy Crouch, thanks so much for being with us. Great book, great conversation. There's Andy Crouch, executive editor of Christianity Today, author of the new book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power.